Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we are live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. Alan Klein is a name that stirs strong emotions in Beatle fans. Hindsight is always 2020 vision, but what do we need to know about how 75% of the Beatles uh, signed up to this man with some tacit support from time to time from the other 25%? How did he get to claim his prize of the Fab Four? And yet, if he was so smart, why did he make so many mistakes along the way? We're going to talk about Alan Klein, but it, obviously it is a Beatles story, Stephen, and I think this ticks all of your boxes. It ticks all of my boxes. Is it a Beatles story? Is it the Alan Klein story and the Beatles are just bit players, Jason? I think that's the way I'm approaching it today. Well, I, I, we're, we're going to go approaching this today. We're going to go into this over a number of episodes, as is our current season six styly, because we said we'd start with Brian and now we've gotten to Klein. Don't do don't, it. Don't, don't do it. <laughs> um, but he, when you delve down into all the, the, the details of what Alan Klein did for the Beatles and what he what he did in the past, it seems to me he was almost on his best behaviour for the Beatles, that he was trying to... You know, we'll go through some of his pre-Beatles history in a sec. His attitude was kind of a bit kind of gruff, hit and run. He really, though, did want to be the Beatles guy. I think that's absolutely right. I think that's absolutely right. He saw the Beatles as the ultimate prize. And there's a book by Fred Goodman. And he says that really Klein was in love with John Lennon. That that really he was just... There's always a book that says that, though, isn't there? There's always a book that says that. But he said that, you know, that... Everyone else that he represented was just a client, but with Lennon, it was different. It was a sort of personal relationship. He admired him. And I think you're right. I mean, it may not seem like it, but yeah, I think he was on his best behavior, or at least the best behavior by Alan Klein standards. Well, we that, that yes, that, that, that's the, the qualifier there. Uh, yeah, as we look through the story, there's definitely an Alan John thing going on. And it's almost like the first introduction into John Lennon's world of New York City. Do you know what I mean? I think that appeals to John greatly, the New York sort of hustler. And Mm. uh, in a sense, you get comments like that from Ringo as well and comments from George, but they they recognise him for what he is in terms of a a bit of a snake, uh, Mm. you know, um, a street fighting guy, but... That's what they need. And there is a sort of grudging admiration or respect for that, uh, even for the flaws. He's he's the anti-Brian. You know, Brian is so 
suave and sophisticated and comes from a sort of theatrical, slightly effete background. And Klein is just the polar opposite. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, he, he's a con man on our side for a change is the famous quote that uh, will we'll come across as, as we go into all of this. And, um, you know, as I kind of said in the introduction there, for Beatle fans, Alan Klein is this sort of, ah, oh, this kind of pantomime villain, you know, he appears and we all go boo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for those yeah. of you not familiar uh, around the world with what happens at a pantomime. But he's he's he does do things that end up... Um, you know, working out okay for the Beatles, but he, that that is probably outweighed by all the bad. I think everything is outweighed by the fact that the Beatles broke up. And yes. he is seen as, Derek Taylor refers to him at one point as the great demon, you know, the great villain. Every story needs a villain and he is the ultimate, you know, irredeemable villain. Everyone else in the story is, is there's a, there's a, flexibility or fluidity about their character. So Yoko was the demon for a while and now she's been uh, rehabilitated. Klein is never going to be rehabilitated until we get to part four of this episode. <laughs> well, yeah, I think I kind of, uh, you know, when we started plotting out uh, Alan Klein, um, you were kind of of the, hey, you know, he wasn't so bad variety, I think was your your um, your take. But yes. maybe we should just park that and, uh, you know, we'll see where we, where, where we end pe- up. Pe- people are switching <laughs> off. Um, who who Alan Klein and where he come from? What is the what is the? How did he get to where he got to? Well, uh, he his background is very interesting because of the parallels you can draw with John Lennon. So he he's born into a sort of fairly impoverished Jewish family. He spent most of his childhood in an orphanage, not because he was actually an orphan, but because his father couldn't afford to bring up uh, all of the children. He find himself living with and being raised by an aunt for a long period uh, of, of time. And he sort of is one of these people that dragged himself up by his own bootstraps. So he takes yeah. evening classes to become an accountant. He's the absolute antithesis of the sort of wealthy, privileged, born into the professions uh, class of people that you would get in New York. He literally comes from the streets and he brings that attitude to everything that he does. So in the late 50s, he finds himself working for an accountancy firm that uh, handled the accounts of Bobby Darren. Yeah, it's worth keeping that in mind that at his heart, he is an accountant. Alan yes. Klein. That is his, his two skills, as you say, as being a bit of a rough and tumble hustler. But he's also, you know, I guess we have these days forensic accountants, you know, people who are able to go in and do the books. I don't know if that was a thing in the 50s, but that is his key skill is that he can take a set of books and go through them. He's a numbers man. He's a numbers mm. guy. And that's how he makes his reputation. So uh, in 1959, he meets Bobby Darren at a wedding and uh, introduces himself and in saying, I can make you $100,000. And Darren said, well, what do I need to do? And he supposedly, client says, nothing. Just let me look at your accounts. Now, I imagine this is like the wedding scene in The Godfather. <laughs> you know, yes. where there's lots of people milling around and Klein is kind of making his, making his pitch. But this is exactly what he does. He goes through the accounts looking for money that the record company has not paid to Darren. Bobby Darren gives him absolute free reign to do this. And he duly receives the check for $100,000. Deal done. 
And it's combining it with his street smarts. He goes through the books and then he kind of, you know, does a, uh, like a legitimate shakedown, more to, so to speak, of the, the, the companies involved saying, where is this money? And then per artist, he obviously takes his cut. Yes. And it's not that he does it in a polite, civilized, I do believe no. you owe my clients some money. Once he's established that the money is owed, he just goes in, uh, you know, hard. This becomes his trademark. And yeah, it is his trademark. And, you know, the 50s are turning into the 60s because that's what happens. And he he kind of finds this as his raison d'etre that he starts, you know, getting involved in uh, the burgeoning and exploding you know, pop music movement, particularly the, the British invasion. It, exactly. So he picks up sort of various celebrity clients and record companies start to fear him. And that's important as well, because you know, once you establish that reputation, half the work is done. Mm. Uh, the record company knows, oh my God, it's Klein. You, you know, they know what's coming. So he he seems from an early stage to have identified the Beatles as the big prize, but he knows they're with Epstein. So he, what he does is he starts focusing on, I suppose, the sort of second wave British invasion acts. So at one point, he's uh, looking after Herman's Hermits, all the big ones, the Animals, Dave Clark Five, The Who, Kinks, The Stones, and obviously a friend of the show, Donovan. Donovan. So Donovan um, showed the Beatles how to be managed by Alan Klein. That's quite amazing. Exactly. Exactly. Um, The... uh, uh, yeah, and, and sometimes he kind of does it in through the back door. Sometimes he kind of buys into people's publishing. And, he, he you know, there, there's a couple of quotes from Ray Davies and Pete Townsend that they they almost didn't really realise that Alan Klein had anything to do with them. The Ray Davies quote is good. He says, uh, I never signed a piece of paper with Alan Klein, but I'm sure he can pull one from a drawer somewhere. So, uh, and, and Townsend says, I hate him still. I can't bear the fact that he's a part of my life. So what, what he did with Townsend was he surreptitiously bought into the Who's publishing company. So mm. he's, he's, and this is, this is again, he was very aware of the interaction between manufacturing, sales, royalties, and publishing. Yes, and that is something that uh, occurs an awful lot when you when you read stories of people who signed contracts they shouldn't have in the music business, is yep. that by rights, you should have different people representing your publishing and your manufacturer and your management, because if you have one person doing all of those things, first of all, they're not necessarily going to act in your best interests because they end up acting for themselves across all of your business interests, but also they can triple dip uh, in terms yes. of taking a cut off your salary or taking a cut off your money. So if you have a million quid coming in and the same person is your manager, your record label and your publishing company, then they're dipping in for 25% each time from that pot of money. And before you know it, they have more money than the artist. That's a rough... Pretty uh, well. I'm no I'm no accountant, Stephen, but that's my take on things. That's You'd, you'd have done great in the 60s. <laughs> yeah, triple dipping would be great. Um and Klein worked hard. He was a he was a non-drinker. All the best people are non-drinkers, uh, Stephen. He was, uh, and he seemed to just you know care for his family and for looking at accounts. <laughs> That's all he wanted to do. It's difficult to sort of look at him and think, well, what did he enjoy doing other than work? And the answer seems to be not much. Yeah, uh, that that was his whole focus. And his 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 nephew describes being taken for a holiday uh, by Klein to London and just sitting in meetings all day and uh, you know on the last day of the holiday he sneaks off and gets in a taxi and 
shows himself around London because th- there was no holiday. It's all just work, 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 work. Yeah. Um, I like this quote from Clive Davis, who was the president of Columbia Records at the time and is one of these music business titans, um, said that Klein was a, an alert, hardworking businessman who has operated quite imaginatively in the record world. Like imaginatively, he's doing a lot of heavy lifting there. It is indeed. It is indeed. <laughs> um, the, the big the big client he had at the start of the 60s was Sam Cooke. And you can kind of, if you look at the Sam Cooke way of doing business with Alan Klein, it gives you an idea of where his mind was at and how he went about doing things. The, the, the template seems to have been the movie industry where various actors were sort of breaking away from the studio system and setting themselves up as independent contractors almost um, and, and where they owned their own work and they were selling things back or leasing or licensing things back to, to the company. So in 1963, Klein becomes Cook's business manager and he negotiates an agreement with Cook having all the rights to his future recordings, gate receipts for concerts and 10% of all record sales and back royalties. So this is absolutely unprecedented um, mm. in the terms of what's happening at the, the minute, he also sets up a company for Cook that produces, manufactures, packaged the recordings, which are then sold to RCA for resale to retailers. And this is a model that we'll, we'll see crops up again later in the story. Now, fundamentally, that is a good idea. That is a good way of doing things. That um, if you are a successful actor, if you're an act that is generating money, then you just become your own record label. Um, like on paper, and then you give your recordings back to a record label that actually exists. And it's worth keeping in mind, you know, why the Beatles didn't do that when they renegotiated in 67, why they just signed up to EMI again instead of doing a version of this. And, uh, you know, if you read the small print on many records these days, you know, the bigger acts you will see are actually leasing their records back. Even some of the smaller acts, like somebody like uh, Elvis Costello, he leases his later records, his current records are just leased back. But you take something like uh, the Rolling Stones since 1971, they're constantly leasing all those albums back. And then we've seen over the last two or three decades, they move them from label to label. So it's, a, it's for 1963, that is a good idea in theory. It's incredibly innovative. And mm. the, the, the secret here is you give your the record company the right to distribute these recordings for a set period of years. Yeah. So that once that deal is up, as you say, you can move on to another label. And Bowie Pyant, you know, did this most successfully. Yep. Um, but it seems to me that this is this is the template. It all starts here. You know, if you own the recordings, you own not just the, the rights to sell the recordings, but where to place them or where to put them. Exactly. So what, what happens next, of course, is that tragically Sam Cooke is killed. He's shot uh, and killed in a sort of a, it's a very bizarre story mm. about how Sam Cooke dies, but people can go and look that up. But uh, Klein then is in control of the copyright of songs like Twisting the Night Away and, and Wonderful World. And this is a license to print money for mm. years and years. So the story that... that uh, People talk about in 1984, that Harrison Ford movie, Witness, there's a dance sequence in a barn to the to Wonderful World. The client sees a rough cut of the movie and realizes that if he withholds the right to use the song, they're going to have to recut the whole scene. Mm. So he says, well, that's fine. You can have it. Give me $200,000. And he gets it. And he gets it. It's cheaper than recutting the movie. 
Yeah. Um, and this is why, you know, I hate to bring everything back to Jeff Lynne, but this is why somebody like Jeff Lynne re-records all his songs to sound the exact same, because these, what are called synchronisation rights, are phenomenally lucrative today when an awful lot of other uh, money streams have dropped away. You know, we're selling only 10% of the records we were sold, selling 20 years ago. So the reason people like Jeff re-record stuff to sound the exact same is that they can undercut their masters that are owned by somebody else and sell them direct to things like movies and adverts and all the rest. Do you want to re-record that little bit with uh, but substituting Taylor Swift for the younger members of the audience? Or? <laughs> You're 100% right. Like Taylor Swift, um, you know, one of her big hits is Love Song. She's re-recorded that from scratch. She has licensed that already to a, an advertising campaign in the States. Um, Jeff's re-recorded version of Mr. Blue Sky is on an advertising campaign here in, in Ireland at the minute for the National Lottery. So there's lots of, uh, you know, money to be made there and um you know alan klein had a bit of foresight there and the other thing i'm thinking of is sam cook in the 80s is all the the levi's adverts as well so yes yes nice to know that um when nick Kamen was making that ad in 1985 86 that alan klein was making a couple of hundred grand off the back end of it, it warms the heart every time nick Kamen dropped his jeans in a laundrette alan made some money good to know if you don't know that ad People won't know what we're talking about. Um, we'll, we'll put a link somewhere. The the If people don't think about the Beatles when they think about Alan Klein, they think about the Rolling Stones. And, you know, the, there's a kind of a drip, drip, drip going on that, you know, Klein is, is slowly circling his way into British invasion groups. Um, like any body who's, uh, you know, likes to hustle. Of course, the Beatles are the big ticket, but the Stones... They were always number two. And yes. his Alan Klein's name is still on, very prominently, every Rolling Stones record today that originally came out between 64 and, and 71. So how does Klein get to the Stones? Because he uses the Stones ultimately to, to get to the Beatles. As you say, there's this relentless progress towards the big prize. But... Mm. Oh, it, People talk about Klein being the manager, you know, the Stones manager or involved. He was actually initially, first of all, the manager of Andrew Luke Oldham. So he mm-hmm. comes in as Oldham's manager. So uh, the, the background story there, just very quickly, is in 1963, Andrew Luke Oldham sees the Rolling Stones, um, senses the potential. He is still a teenager at this stage. He's so himself. young, yeah. He's so young. Crazy, absolutely mm. crazy. Um, and of course, Oldham has worked with Epstein, see, has seen the Beatles and is kind of using that as a model. So he, he partners up with a guy called Eric Easton, who is a sort of more seasoned business uh, partner. He takes over management of the Stones, notionally represented by Giorgio Gramelski, and starts to manage them. And what he does is he goes to DECA, and he targets Dick Rowe, who famously mm-hmm. had turned turned down the Beatles. So he's not gonna he's not gonna pass on this again. But what they do is they negotiate a recording contract that's very favorable to Oldham and Easton. And it's a version of this Sam Cooke kind of plan. It's the set up our own record label kind of vibe. Exactly. So they set up a company called Impact Sound, which owns or retains ownership of the master tapes, which are then leased to Decca. Mm. Impact Sound receive 14% royalty from DECA, but they pay 6% to the Stones. And out of the Stones 6%, Oldham and Easton take a 25% management fee. 
So, I mean, uh, crazy, crazy. But what he also goes on to do is he develops uh, the Andrew Oldham Orchestra, mm. um, which is he gets the Stones and other session musicians to do pop covers and instrumentals. And we this will come back into play, this this uh, Andrew Oldham Orchestra. Um, later on, he sets up immediate records. He signs P.P. Arnold, Chris Farlow, The Small Faces, John Mayall, Rod Stewart, The Nice, Jimmy Page, hugely successful and then in 1965 he hires alan klein as his own personal business manager Mm. and this is the first step to cutting easton out of the deal and he sends klein in on his behalf to go and negotiate with uh with daca and it's um it's it's apparently one of these bits of rolling stones lore that uh alan klein summons the stones to 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 just go to 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 Dedeka and he basically says to them you know we're going to you know come out with the best record deal in the world and all I want you guys to do is just sit in the back of the room wear sunglasses don't say a word and it's kind of a you know another shakedown an intimidation kind of thing that they're going to do exactly exactly this you know don't talk i'll do all the talking so they're dealing with sir edward lewis and you you know it's kind of frightfully uh, proper English uh, businessman. He's the chair, and he is absolutely appalled by this because they're, they're, the Stones are already under contract, and this mm. is so this is this is a mid-contract renegotiation. And uh, he says we've got a good lot of good people working at this company, by which he means you know lawyers. You know we've got a contract, and Klein said, "Well, I hope they can sing because you've just lost the Stones," and that's the ultimate. It's that well, fine, it's over. You know it's. It's 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 an odd thing though because technically, Decca are right. You know, you've signed a deal. Just finish the you know, do the terms of the deal. But it's this idea, you, you, you know, in in when Epstein died and Stigwood was on on the prowl and the Beatles sort of go, well, we don't want you. So you know what we'll do? We'll just record "God Save the Queen" a hundred times and we'll just withdraw cooperation. Well, I guess if you're in the pop music business in 1965, it's all very short term. Uh, you know, so if if you're thinking, oh my God, I'm not going to get, this goes into litigation and it ties up the Stones or the Beatles or whatever group for, for 12 months, that is an eternity. You know, that's like you do 10% of the lifetime of rock and roll. We don't have time to do any of that. You know, this this thing mightn't be generating cash in the 1970s. I guess that's that's what's pushing the, the, the oh my God, we better do something kind of mindset. I think so because it's it's the era of two albums a year, four singles yep. a year. It's as you say, it's 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 just a fast turnaround. Um, it's all fads and fashions as far as people are concerned. There is no long term to this music. It's completely yep. ephemeral. Um, and Keith Richards says they crumbled, and we walked yep. out with a deal bigger than the Beatles, and that's absolutely crucial. It was a better deal than the Beatles had. And and when he meets the Stones in '65, the Stones are still relatively young. They're in their early twenties. Bill Wyman is a bit older, and uh, you know he subsequently said in his memoir, "I didn't trust him, Klein, and he knew it." Why don't you like me, Bill? He would say to me on many occasions, "Because I don't trust you, Alan." I would reply, um, but he does deliver initially to the Stones by giving them all big fat royalty checks. This is it. He he the money comes in, and he keeps giving them checks. Um, uh, the other aspect, and this is another Klein innovation, we know that the, the income tax rates in the UK were sky high uh, at this time. So what Klein does is he takes the money, 
just resting in his account. <laughs> he puts it into a US company and then yes. basically draws it back very slowly uh, over a long period of time and gives it to the Stones as an income. So they pay less tax. But the money, the capital money, is sitting in an account controlled by Klein, and he has the use of that money. Yeah. That's so not going to end well. <laughs> well, he, he invests it in other things, which earn more money in interest and investment returns than the money that's going out. So it's the same it, It's the same notion that, you know, if you have £100,000 and you put it into the bank and you earn 2% interest or whatever it is, mm. the bank has taken your money and invested it in something else and is earning 4% or 10% interest. Yeah. So they're using your money. So this is what, this is what Klein is doing. He takes their lump sum royalty advances, puts it into a US company, invests it, and then pays it back. But the stones are not, benefiting from the investment profit. They're just getting their own money back over time with a reduced tax. But the other danger of doing stuff like that is, yeah, that uh, there are tax demands at stages in that chain, you know, capital gains is who owns what, who's responsible for weighing, paying which taxes. You know, at the time in the UK in the mid-60s, the tax rate was 90 uh, percent 95 percent in some instances, hence yeah. one for you, 19 for me on, on Taxman. So we could understand why he wanted to get the money out of there, but my sense is that there wasn't the greatest of clarity. He wasn't publishing an end-of-year report for the Rolling Stones to see what was going on. No, and it's back to that point that you were saying he is doing all of this and they do, do not have anybody independent of him looking at this and saying yeah. this is not, not in your best interest. So everything is being dealt with by, by the one person, but this sums up his attitude and there's a quote from around this time where he, he says to one of his associates, don't take 20% of an artist's income. Give them yep. 80% of your income. And that's exactly <laughs> what he's doing. He's taking yeah. the stones lump sum, investing it, keeping the profit and paying the lump sum back over. It's genius. <laughs> no, it's not. It's some kind of self-harm Ponzi scheme potentially. But what Klein is good at doing is waiting for his moment, you could say. So when Oldham, Andrew Luke Oldham brings Alan Klein in, Oldham's original business partner, Eric Easton, gets sidelined. And Klein is quite happy to sit back and wait to see if Andrew Luke Oldham is going to disappear or move off. Because essentially, Andrew Luke Oldham owns the keys to the Rolling Stones' master's yes. recordings. And yes. good Lord, hasn't that become a, a valuable thing? And... That's really exactly what happens. It is. This is in the context then in 1967 of the various drug busts, you know, Jagger, Richards, Brian Jones, and Oldham essentially sort of exits stage left and heads to the States, uh, leaving Klein as the man on the spot to, to sort of deal with all mm. of this. And ultimately, Oldham resigns as manager of the Stones and he sells the rights to the group's music to Klein the following year. So oh th there's a lot. Th th <laughs> Why? <laughs> there's a lot of um, uh, there's a there's a lot of sort of sense about oh Klein did this nefarious deal and s stole the stone. He he didn't steal anything. He didn't kind of he just bought what Andrew Lug Oldham owned, and he just bought that off him. And, yeah. Uh, so, but that what, seems what I'm. I suppose yes. what I'm saying is Klein, <laughs> Klein, Klein did not initiate some scam 
to, to get Stone's rights. The Stones had already lost their rights before Klein came on because of the deal that they had with Oldham, I think. No, that is true. That is true. But I, I, I guess Klein, uh, savvy and as plugged in as he was and as hardworking and as, you know, n- not drinking, not drugging, not doing any of that kind of stuff, his antenna would have been up. It's not as if Andrew Luke Oldham put everything out to market or went to the highest bidder or anything like that. Um, no. Klein had the money to make this purchase. You'd, you'd wonder, you know, was he buying the Rolling Stones Masters with Rolling Stones money? Probably Possibly, yes, I would say maybe. So. <laughs> I'm, I'm, as I'm as I'm saying that sentence, I'm wondering who can sue us for saying this. But I think I think we're okay. I I would be surprised if that was not the case. Yeah. Um. You, you know that that there was a pot of money that Klein was investing. He he's effectively investing it. Why not invest it in the Stones' own catalog? What I would say is that the, the Oldham story is fascinating, and mm. he has he has several books. But the first book, which is just called Stone, it tells you all you need to know, um, yep. is a fantastic book and a fantastic read. And I really recommend uh, that book to people yeah. if you want to kind of get into the detail of the background. Um, I think Stoned 2 is possibly the, the sequel. Yeah, or Two Stoned, I think it's called. Or Two Stoned, but... Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a fascinating story. And he's out there. He does his own podcast and he's perfectly capable of suing us. So we better leave it there. Better be nice. He's on Twitter, so we can all say hello to him. Um, so we're at this point then in 68 where um, Klein is taking over the Stones Masters and every new recording that they make is owned by Alan Klein. Um, you'd have to assume then that the Beatles are well aware of who Alan Klein is and have been for a while it's not that he suddenly appears out of the blue in january 69 they they, they must he, he must have been in their you know site not sites but just in their awareness they definitely they know of him and there have has definitely been contact between klein and nems klein and epstein uh, uh early on klein we touched on this in the way back at the start of the this this run in the uh, uh, Brian Epstein episode, Epstein and Klein meet in London in 1964, ostensibly yeah. because there's some talk about um, Sam Cooke supporting the Beatles on on a tour. Um, but they begin talking about this, and then Klein broaches the possibility of a business relationship. And Peter Brown talks about this and says, Klein said that he heard the Beatles' low royalty rates were technical term for shit and that he could renegotiate their contracts. Brian was royally offended at the suggestion that someone else should do his job for him and he had Klein shown to the door. So, uh, you know, that's the first point at which Klein is kind of saying, well, you know, and it's probably this idea, let me come in, look at the accounts. They must owe you stuff and then we'll be able to leverage. But Epstein is absolutely dead against this. Well, it's, it's it's very much to do with his manner that you know when he yes. when he to Epstein it's it's um you know we can be amused that you know people were kind of clutching their pearls when he's you yep. know effing and jeffing and giving out and and saying what he's going to do and being all the tough guy that wouldn't have been the kind of thing that um, Brian brought into his circle definitely not and this is what I'm saying it's it's such a contrast they're they're just mm. night and night and day polar polar opposites. And we, we we talked a lot in the first two episodes or first 
second or third episodes this were on about Epstein's insecurity around this time as the Beatles stop touring and they get into 65, they get into 66. He is aware that there is a contract renegotiation coming up with with uh, EMI. Uh, Klein has done the deal for the Stones. That's the background against what, what he goes in. He doesn't get the same deal. He can't get the same deal with EMI. So the Stones are getting 75 cents an album. Epstein's in the room negotiating with EMI and uh, he falls short. The Beatles get 15% uh, per album, uh, which is, diff- you know, 25% is what the Stones are getting and uh, 17.5% in the US. So he doesn't get the same deal. And again, it's totally strange considering how big the Beatles were by the end of 66, and that goes without saying, and what other more savvy people were doing, that that was the point when what was envisioned for Apple should have been set up, where they set up their own recording company. They call it NEMS or they call it Apple. They lease these yeah. back to EMI and then they use that as a springboard to pull in other artists, um, as is their want. That was the point to do it. Because what we will see as we follow this trail is that NEMS, uh, Brian's company, is the company that is once they're signed to EMI again in 67, that the money comes into NEMS and NEMS passes the recording money onto the Beatles. It's important to remember that key piece of information. That's yes. NEMS's role. And that wasn't reorganised at this time when it could have been. No, that that's right. And if, if you look at that immediate label that Oldham has set up, that's the template mm. for Apple. Yeah. You know, you're bringing in other other artists. Uh, Oldham is... is fulfilling that function. But I think the Beatles, you could also see the the seeds of Apple's downfall in the collapse of immediate, where where it's one individual is is the focus and that he's under this pressure and under this stress and the whole thing ultimately uh, fall, falls apart. Um, yeah. But yeah, this is, this is, the model is there, the template is there and uh, they, they don't move towards that. Yeah, the template is there, but the execution of the template is is not very solid. So there's the big Beatles record deal renegotiation in late 66 and into 67. Did Alan Klein actually have any role to play in this? Find out after the break. End of part one. Intermission. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss end of intermission part two uh welcome back so we all know that the beatles end up signing and staying on emi but 
there is this negotiation that is going on. It is not as good as, as we said just before the break there, as um, the Stones' remuneration. And Klein is summoned at this time, or we th- there, there's a rumour that he's about at this time? There is a rumour that he's about at this time. So there are two very interesting things. The first is that Paul, of all people... Of all people. Of all people, yeah. uses Klein's success with the Stones against Epstein. So reportedly, in front of the other Beatles, Paul says to Epstein, yeah, well, Klein got the Stones a quarter of a million, didn't he? What about us? So Paul is sort of chiding Brian, mm. you know, throwing this up at him. You know, you're not you're, you're not as good as Klein. You know, we're bigger than the Stones. Why are we on less money? And I suppose a couple of things out of this. One, this does sit with Paul's... Paul has always had issues with Epstein's management. Right back to the beginning, he's the one that turns up late for meetings. He's the one that is... Um, very aware of his own worth. And why why would he not be? Why would he Yeah, not I don't be? think it's personal with Paul. I think Paul is um he's just refusing to suffer fools gladly and uh, uh you know if there's if there's if you look at these things another way, they're not personal against Brian or any management body per se. He's just in a self preservation mode and he's he's looking left and right before he crosses uh, any road before he signs any contract. Yeah, uh, well, we, and we know that Epstein at this point is incredibly sensitive mm. because his own management contract, the NAMES management contract with the Beatles, is due to expire in October of nineteen sixty-seven. Yeah, so it's 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 up for renewal. And we looked at this in the Epstein episodes. You know, he is under pressure uh, from all sides. The business was expanding. And then, you know, his the boys mm. uh, led by Paul are saying, well, what about us? You, you, you know, you're not doing doing as well. To, to compound matters in November 1966, and again, we, we touched on this briefly in the Epstein episode, he has to come out and deny a newspaper rumour that the Beatles had been in touch with Klein and were mm. already negotiating uh, for, for a future management deal. And this appears in the Sunday Telegraph on the 13th of November 1966. 66, and it says specifically, Mr. Alan Klein, the American impresario, film producer, and business manager of the Rolling Stones, has been approached by two of the Beatles over their further management. And the story was supposedly that via a third-party intermediary, the Beatles had been in touch with Klein, and clearly the inference is that that third party is a stone. Yes. Now... It's very, very possible that this is a planted story. Yes, I think so. Mm. I mean, you can see that this story would have completely freaked Brian out. But uh, Steve Turner, in his book 1966, which if you haven't read it, you should. It's a great it's the, book. Yeah. Not, not, nothing is real book tax, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. So he, he does put this down to Klein effectively sounding the Beatles out and using the press to do this. And over the next few weeks, the story is kept front and centre by Klein's lawyer saying, oh, well, I can't say who the third party intermediary is. And then Tony Barrow, on behalf of Brian and Nems and the Beatles, is is issuing furious denials. And all of this is getting traction and getting publicity. And it's all very clever. It is clever. And... Yeah, it it puts Klein's name into the mix, even if he's not actually doing anything. Um, but it's one of these 
it's just to get his name associated with the Beatles. Alan Klein is such an important American impresario that uh, the Beatles need him. And it's all probably, more than likely, made up. I think so. I yeah. think so. And and th- it is this kind of subliminal linking that Klein is now officially in their orbit. Mm. You, you know, he's ma- being mentioned in the same terms. It is the case that Mick Jagger, initially impressed by Klein's skills, has recommended him uh, to, to Paul McCartney. And uh, Derek Taylor uh, recounts Jagger actually saying, this is a fantastic uh, phrase. He said, <laughs> well, maybe you wouldn't want to go on holiday with Alan, but he'll take care of you. So... Well, even that, you know, is potentially uh, negotiable <laughs> in due yes. course. You know, I'm not sure. Um, so, uh, the, the Mick Jagger and Alan Klein is an interesting thing because Mick Jagger is even up to today seen as this sort of business, the business stone and the stone who's involved in, you know, the the most of the the management uh, style, um, and. So Mick is close to Alan Klein, and then, as we will see as the story progresses, he does become wary of Alan Klein. And Marianne Faithful has a take on why Mick Jagger might be introducing Alan Klein to uh, to the Beatles. Yes, this is this is fascinating. Uh, she says Mick's strategy in dealing with Alan Klein was fairly diabolical. He would fob Klein off on the Beatles. Mick called up John Lennon and told him, you know who you should get to manage you, man? Alan Klein. And John, who was susceptible to utopian joint projects, such as alliances between the Beatles and the Stones, said, yeah, what a brilliant idea. It was a bit of a dirty trick, but once Mick had distracted Klein's attention by giving him bigger fish to fry, Mick could begin unraveling the Stones' ties to him. It was just a matter of time before the relationship was severed. I mean, if that's true, it is kind of funny that Mick Jagger is you know, fobbing Klein off on the Beatles in order to get him out of the Stones business affairs. Yes, it's, uh, it's uh, you, again, if we ever get Mick on the uh, on the podcast. Unlikely. That's that's the question. <laughs> that's the question. Uh, it, it seems, I mean, there is a point at which Mick does come later to warn the Beatles about Klein. Yeah. So it's a little it's a little inconsistent with that. But you could see him thinking, well, if Klein moves on to the Beatles, yeah. then we can start to sort things out. So it's 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 interesting. It's fascinating to think that that may be that may be correct. Um. So the the, the Stones Klein Beatles axis is a very important one, and there is an event towards the end of 1968, which chances are, if you are a listener to a Beatles uh, podcast, you will know uh, about the the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, which was a TV special, a concert uh, and a TV show organised by the Rolling Stones on the 11th and 12th of December 1968, uh, which was filmed on the theme of a a circus with special guests Jethro Tull, The Who, Taj Mahal, Marion Faithful, the Rolling Stones and a supergroup called The Dirty Mac. And Klein is is running uh, all of this. Uh, The show is essentially mothballed until 1996. But this is where we have a face-to-face John and Alan Klein meeting for the first time, we think. 
yes, we think this is where they first meet. And it isn't much of a meeting. It's just a sort of meet and greet. It's yeah. a hello. It's a handshake. But this is where they 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 first they first uh, actually uh, team up. And I, you know, if we're assuming that Klein has a a skill for making an impression, shall we say, or reading people or trying to get things out of people. Um, John would have met Klein, I guess, with the knowledge that here is the guy who's gotten tons of money for the Rolling Stones. And Klein is meeting John with the perception of, well, I'm going to get some face time with a Beatle and I better make it count kind of thing. And so yep. he would be bringing his skills of persuasion into that. And at best, it's it's kind of um, planting a seed, really. That's probably that's probably right. The other thing to bear in mind is he Klein is meeting John and Yoko. Yes. And yes. he will undoubtedly have had the opportunity that day to to, to witness or to, to see the relationship between John and Yoko. And that will be quite important because he seems to be one of the people very early on that takes that relationship seriously. Yeah. That, that he, he can see the depth of that relationship and he will use that, um, you know, four or five weeks down the line. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's hard to know whether um, the Alan Klein-Yoko relationship, how sincere Alan is about it. Is that a fair thing to say? I think that's very fair. I think that's very fair. I, my own sense is that certainly early on at mm. this stage, it's just a means to an end. Uh, you know, he will involve Yoko in the negotiations because he can see how close John and Yoko are and how, how much John is deferring to her at this, at this point in their relationship. Um, you know, John and Yoko perform as part of this one-off supergroup, The Dirty Mac, which is Eric Clapton and Mitch Mitchell and Keith Richards and Yoko herself. Um, it's a good performance. They sing Your Blues, whole lot of Yoko as well. whole lot of Yoko is, is a very good performance. I do I do like that performance. One thing I, I hadn't, it hadn't occurred to me, but uh, The Dirty Mac is a play on Fleetwood Mac, apparently. Yeah, Fleetwood Mac sort of are hanging around at this here in Get Back as well. They're, they're, and... You know, there's the get uh, there's the Fleetwood Mac influence on Sun King, um, but it and there's, they also rehearse a little bit of uh, Revolution as well uh, for yes. Rock and Roll Circus that came out that, a year or two ago. That 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 would have been very good if they if they managed to yeah. to get that done. And the, of course, the man who's directing all of this in another form of um, what would you call you know it's all connectedness is Michael Lindsay Hogg, and so this is in some way is the bridge between Michael Lindsay Hogg directing the Hey Jude video and then going on the following month to be involved in, in Get Back. Yes, because the Stones always copy the Beatles. Isn't that the uh, <laughs> That's trope? Exactly. That's exactly what it is. Um, and Michael Lindsay Hogg, he came up with the idea for the Rock and Roll Circus. Is that right? And how did he do that, Jess? Apparently, he drew a circle on a piece of paper and free associated, which I think people call the McCartney Magical Mystery Tour method of to how to make an entertaining uh, TV special. Um, do, do, by the way, do you like the rock and roll circus? Do you care for it? I don't particularly. I have to say, it's a hard watch if you're watching it all. It's it's interesting. It is. Uh, you know, I do. I, I I do quite like that Marianne Faithful performance, uh, which is kind of sitting down and wearing with her Mia Farrow haircut. And uh, it's interesting because it's the first time Jethro Tull 
mm-hmm. up here, although I think they're miming, to be mm-hmm. fair. Uh, Tommy Iommi is with them. Which is odd. Briefly, yeah. which is odd. Um, the, the Lennon performance is good. I don't care much for the uh, Stones performance, and I can kind of see what the Who are doing, and it would have been incredibly exciting to be there, but it's not my... It's not my who, period, man. <laughs> well, uh, for me, it seemed for years the, the cachet of the rock and roll circus was that you couldn't see it. And, you know, so it, as, it, as we said a second ago, it only came out in 1996. And for years and years and years, we're like, well, this thing is amazing. And when we see it, we'll all be amazed. And when you saw it, you're like, well, you know, it's now passed over into interesting period piece. But I can't really see it having any kind of impact if it had come out at the time, particularly. No, I think that is... Exactly it. Uh, I'm thinking Carnival of Light here, you know? Mm. Yes, yeah. The, le- the, leg- the legend looms larger than, than the reality, perhaps. And, um, and and Brian Jones isn't well. It's his last life performance with the band um, for his death in, in 1969. The thing that is happening, though, unbeknownst to John Lennon, is it's kind of towards the end of 68 that um, the Stones start to try and roll back from Alan Klein and try and get a closer look at what exactly is happening with their affairs. Yes. And this is the point in, in Bill Wyman's book, he publishes these very interesting little series of increasingly anxious telegrams and messages to Klein from each of them saying, I need the money to buy my house. I need the money to pay my tax. Could you send me some money for this? And Klein is just not engaging. So, what had seemed initially to be a fantastic deal where they get this big upfront payment, the reality is they're not they're not rich, they're not well off, they're getting money in dribs and drabs and climbing, yeah. they're almost having to go cap in hand. And this seems to be where the the, the luster has worn off the client relationship and the the, the the fabulous record deal turns out not to be the fabulous record deal in practice in terms yeah. of delivering cash into their, their bank accounts. And, and it's interesting in that sense, it gives perhaps more credibility to Marianne Faithful's suggestion that, uh, oh, well, let's just, you know, get if we can get client focused on the Beatles, then we can, we can get somebody else in. Well, you know, if you're interested in Rolling Stones history, it's at the end of 68 that Prince Rupert Lowenstein enters the Rolling Stones orbit. And he is a merchant banker. And um, he ends up being the Stones' business advisor and financial manager. He comes in in 1968 and he's in that role until 2007. He is the man who steers the ship into Mm. the Rolling Stones, becoming a financial juggernaut in the 70s, 80s and 90s and beyond. And just to give Prince Rupert his full name, because I like this kind of thing. uh, Rupert Louis Ferdinand Frederick Constantine Lofredo Leopold Herbert Maximilian Hubert John Henry Zu Lowenstein Wertheim Frudenberg Count of Lowenstein, Scharfenick. Jeff to his friends. Jeff, Jeff to his friends, Rupee to his friends. Um, and he uh, he only passed away in uh, 2014 and he did write a book before he died about the uh, business affairs of the Stones, which having been in the good graces of the Stones for the better part of, uh, you know, 40 or 50 years, um, Jagger wasn't very happy. He sort of said, oh, it's like your bank manager writing a book about how you did your business. You know, he wasn't really very, very <laughs> glad about all of that. But what, what what's interesting about Prince Rupert, I think, is that he does represent this kind of tilt because in the 60s, you could argue folks like Alan Klein had an in because 
there wasn't a seriousness, I think, maybe to the money that could be made in pop music, or um, it was kind of seen as uncouth, or, you know, not really money worth getting involved in, where you get someone like Prince Rupert, who is maybe agnostic about where the money comes from, and but his job is managing wealth, managing money, and he's just applying that to the pop world. And that is what kind of happens in other places in the music business over the next 10 or 20 years. Yeah, I think that I think that's fair comment. Um, it, it's again, a distinct move away from someone like Epstein, who loves the boys, loves the music, loves, yeah. loves the theatricality of it. And, you know, it's all about showbiz too. It's just it's money. And as you said, it doesn't matter where it comes from. Now, that rock and roll circus is right at the end of 68. January 69, I'm racking my brain, Stephen, to think what the Beatles were doing in January 69. I just can't place it. If only someone had documented it. <laughs> it's, it's not well known. It's not well known. It's not well known. No. Um, what, to put everything in, in context uh, of what, what's about to happen in January 69, you know, between 67 and 68, we've got the Maharishi, we've got Apple, we've got the Stones getting busted um we've got john we've got yoko getting together so all of that is is sort of bubbling away in the background for the last 18 months and then the live concerts by the beatles are coming up and they're going to rehearse and they're going to be in the roundhouse and all of this is happening but in the background apple is just running out of control yeah And, you know, we're joking. Obviously, January 69 is the Beatles' get-back period. Phenomenally well-documented. We've all seen Peter Jackson's film. Um, And into this mix of Klein having met John Lennon, sussed a bit of the situation, seen what's going on, if, if Klein was looking for a reason to reach out, that reason happens in a really um, important interview that gets published on the 13th of January 1969, where John Lennon is talking to Ray Coleman. And it's important, it might have been important necessarily to anyone who was reading it at the time, but Lennon makes some off-the-cuff comments that are a bit um, off-message for the kind of things that the Beatles normally talk about. Yes, so the, the interview, I think, is carried out in late December and then is published on the 13th of January 69. And in the context of talking about Apple... Uh, John says, I think it's a bit messy. It needs tightening up. We haven't got half the money people think we have. We have enough to live on, but we can't let Apple go on like this. If it carries on like this, all of us will be broke in the next six months. That's the quote. All of us will be broke in the next six months. Now, that's clearly hyperbole on on Lennon's part. Mm -hmm. You know, with the mechanical royalties they're earning and, you know, they're not going to be broke in the next six months, but it's, it's an indication that he recognizes Apple is out of control. It's hemorrhaging money. It's not the sort of utopian vision that they had is not coming to fruition. And there's hangers on. Uh, Derek Taylor is entertaining the press royally. You know, the Hells Angels will arrive for Christmas. It's just chaos. And, you know, that is one of the take-home messages from watching and re-watching The Get Back is that you see the foremost famous people in the world, in the music business anyway, um, you see how successful they are, how tight they are, but you also see that they are floundering and that there is nobody acting as a barrier between them and the outside world. And 
they are retreating into making music because dealing with the bigger picture seems to be perhaps too difficult. This is this is exactly it. So, you know, you do have NEMS is still there in, in the background. Yeah. Clive uh, Epstein is, is running that. Paul is increasingly dominant uh, in in the studio and is sort of saying we have to we have to have this project we have magical mystery tour and you know Apple is, is to a huge extent Paul's baby um, mm-hmm. in, initially and uh, but there is no one looking at the overall picture in the way that that you know a a proper manager would do and Paul can't be a manager because. He's part of the group. Uh, Clive Epstein doesn't command the same respect or, or position. Effectively, he's just channeling money. There is no management function, it seems to me, uh, that NEMS is undertaking at this point. Um, Apple is full of capable people, but they're all capable yep. of doing their individual jobs. You know, Derek Taylor is the best press officer that ever walked the earth, but he's not interested in running. He's probably he's having too good a time to, to be interested in the business side of it. Yeah, it's it's the role of NEMS, you know, we mentioned earlier on, just to keep in mind that NEMS, at this point, you know, there are no Beatles tours going no. on. The Beatles are still making records and delivering them to EMI. EMI are paying the royalties back to NEMS as a business entity to send the royalties then off to the Beatles. So at this point, NEMS, apart from the other acts that are on the books, which I am assuming are not accounting for the, the bulk of their income. Well, you um, know, Scylla, Scylla's probably doing Scylla. all right. <laughs> Scylla's probably got a TV show on the go. Yep. Um, NEMS, they are, they are receiving all these monies from around the world from record sales. They are dividing them up for the Beatles. And, and that's, that's their main connection to the Beatles. And... You know, in a in a in a better setup, you'd say, well, why isn't that money going straight into Apple or st- straight into another um, entity? Um, and because Brian has died in August of nineteen sixty seven, um, Clive, Brian's brother, has taken over the day to day running of NEMS. But as you state, he's not that kind of simpatico, doing it for the boys, hanging out for the boys anymore. And most of the shares that were Brian's actually passed to Brian's mother, yes. Queenie Epstein. Yes, and. It's worth keeping that in mind because there are certain taxes related to inheritances and and death. So NEMS is potentially um, vulnerable as a business entity. Is that a fair thing to say? That's fair. That's fair. Uh, So what what has happened is Clive has become the managing director. Uh, You know, Stigwood is still around in in late 67. We talked about that. And... um, uh, but we know the, the Beatles contract with NEMS was up for renewal and Stigwood sort of buys out when it becomes clear that, that uh, uh, the Beatles aren't going to cooperate with him. Mm. So the shareholding in NEMS is essentially Queenie Epstein now has uh, 70%, Clive has 20% and the Beatles between them, they each have 2.5%. So they collectively have 10%. And uh, it's just sort of sitting there. And, you know, Peter Brown, for example, who was in NEMS, has now moved to Apple. Apple is, it seems to me, was performing the day-to-day function that NEMS had previously done. So if the Beatles want some money, if they want a car, if they want a house, if they want an airplane ticket somewhere, all of this is being done through Apple, it seems to me, not through NEMS. Um, But yeah, but NEMS is still earning the money. 
Nems is still earning the money. So, and and Klein has made some apparently, according to Peter Brown, representations to get in touch with uh, Nems. In the meantime, he apparently used his foul mouth techniques on Clive Epstein. He was told to go away <laughs> that he wasn't wanted. Um, so he's he's definitely um, sniffing around, and. Um, you know, the quote you mentioned earlier from Derek Taylor is that Klein is essential in the great novel as the demon king. Just as you think everything's going to be all right, here he is. I helped to bring him to Apple, but I did give the Beatles certain solemn warnings. And Klein himself, uh, from Keith Badman's Off the Record book, says, I went straight to Lennon when he said they were going broke. So Klein knows that he needs to get face to face with Lennon in the wake of this quote. Yes. And having seen John and Yoko in person, seen how they operate, understanding that money concerns were a problem for Lennon um, he eventually manages to get a meeting. Yes and it does seem to be you know, Derek Taylor does admit to this in, in his book uh, As Time Goes By. He says you know he facilitated this so so Klein has been sent away on a couple of occasions by, by Clive Epstein and, and, and Peter Brown. Um, but then Tony Calder, who is a business partner of Andrew Oldham's, reaches out to uh, Derek Taylor and says, look, you know, they absolutely wants to meet them. Klein uh, secures that, uh, that meeting uh, at the Dorchester. Uh, you know, come on over, John and Yoko, and have, have some dinner. Let's have a chat. So the first meeting uh, with Alan Klein and John and Yoko happens in the Dorchester Hotel in central London on the evening of January the 27th. And if you've watched Get Back, this is flagged because that's one of the days in Get Back that at the end of the day's uh, recordings, John and Yoko gather up their bits and pieces and they head off to meet Alan Klein in the Dorchester Hotel. And that is where we are going to leave things this week. Right on a cliffhanger. It took all that way just to get John and Yoko and Alan Klein in the same room, Stephen. But we got them together quicker than Klein did, so... (laughs) We did. It took him years. It only took us about an hour. Um, So next week, uh, in our next episode, we'll talk about what happens next when Klein gets his foot in the door um, from January 1969 onwards. We're available in all the usual places. Um, www.nothingisrealpod.com is the website. That's the portal into the Twitter feed, at Beatlespod, the Nothing Is Real Facebook group, um, all the other kind of Instagram, TikTok and fun and games that we have. There's lots of stuff on the website about other things we've done and podcasts that we are on, so you can have a a look and listen there. And uh, we're always happy to keep the conversation going. Uh, But for now, my name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.